This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. So really what I want to do today is give you a tour of the argument. Now I'm going to skip over enormous things, whole continents indeed will be skipped. But I do want to leave room or some time for questions so we, you can pull me back to any particular aspect. Uh, and we can talk a bit more about that. What I want to do is to convince you, or at least to suggest to you, that this is a truly global phenomenon, that it essentially makes possible what we now think of as Irish Catholicism, Irish diasporic identity, uh, and suggest there's a great commonality between that identity in Australia, or in Canada, or in South Africa, uh, that is the result of specific contingent events of specific historical networks and to a great extent a specific plan. So where I want to begin actually, and this has nothing to do with being in Villanova, but it's appropriate, I want to begin in Philadelphia because I think that's actually where this story very much begins. And that's at the appointment in 1830 of an Irishman from Dublin called Francis Patrick Kenrick as the coadjutor bishop of Philadelphia and the bishop of Arath in Partibus Infidelium. Now, Kenrick is sent to Philadelphia because the aged and also Irish bishop, Henry Conwell from Armagh, is by this stage, let's just say, erratic, and that would be putting it kindly. Uh, not long before, he had been recalled to Rome, uh, where in exchange for not being publicly humiliated, he agreed to spend the rest of his days in Roman retirement, uh, he decided in the middle, well, not quite the middle of the night, he did a bunk. He more or less went out a window, snuck back to the United States, and popped up uh, at a meeting of the American bishops, which was rather awkward for everybody concerned. So Kenrick's coming to Philadelphia, an Irishman, not replacing an Irishman precisely, um, assisting another Irishman, has no ethnic subtext. It's a procedural, administrative thing. But Kenrick's an interesting guy. He's from relatively modest background in Dublin. His father is a scrivener. He is sent because he has a clerical uncle, priest who's an uncle, uncle who's a priest, whichever way around that should be, who arranges for him to go to the College of the Propaganda Fide, the urban college in Rome. And the Propaganda Fide is a very interesting institution, founded in 1622 largely provoked by what were perceived to be failures of Portuguese evangelism in India, but it grows into what has been referred to, I think quite accurately, as the colonial office of the Holy See. This is the, how the Vatican controls, or the Holy See controls, the church in those territories where there's not a historical government-to-government -government relationship, so not France, not Germany, mm -hmm. but crucially, including the British Isles, and thus the British Empire, and former parts of the British Empire, like the United States. So Kenrick goes as a student to the Propaganda Fide in the mid-1810s. About 25% of the students in the college, and there are only about 20 or 30 students at one time, were Irish at this stage. They were joined by mostly people from the Eastern churches, Chaldeans, Syrians, uh, what we would now call the Uniate churches in the East. The Irish were the only Western Europeans in residence in the propaganda, where they were formed in a particular kind of Roman Catholicism, 
the Catholicism of the city of Rome at the time of Pope Pius VII. Kenrick goes out to be a missionary in Kentucky. He's the first product of the Propaganda College to go on the American mission, leaves in 1821, thereabouts, where he immediately builds a reputation as a talented missionary. He is an active theologian, an active polemicist, an active preacher, quickly becomes the favorite of the French Sulpician Bishop of um, Bardstown, uh, a man called Flaget, and French Sulpician bishops will be a big part of my story, and I'll return to them. And Kenrick is building a good reputation in the American church. He's sent to Philadelphia because he's competent, because he was going to become a bishop sooner or later, and this was where needed, what needed the help. But Kenrick represents a fundamentally new phenomenon in American Catholicism. Roman-trained, Irish background, not French, not trained in pre-revolutionary continental Europe not associated with the Sulpicians. Sulpicians are a group in, originally from France, created to provide seminary education, uh, and very powerful in Montreal and in Quebec. The Sulpicians dominate the American church at this stage, providing numerous bishops. Something like half the bishops were either directly Sulpicians in 1830 or associated with the Sulpicians. Clearly the dominant network. There had been Irish bishops, including in Philadelphia, also in New York, some other places, but they had been unsuccessful. Irish priests had been largely perceived to be, let's just say, rambunctious, not amenable to Episcopal authority. Philadelphia itself had been convulsed by any number of schisms and scandals and problems, none of which we need to go into in any great detail, except the place was in chaos in ecclesiastical terms. Kenrick brings what I've elsewhere called Hiberno-Roman Catholicism to the United States. He turns up in Philadelphia, he thinks he's going to be in charge, he thinks Conwell is going to let him be in charge. That doesn't work out. Kenrick begins to form an alliance with the most unfortunate name for an Irishman ever, John England, mm -hmm. who's Bishop of Charleston, South Carolina. England himself is an outlier in the American hierarchy, appointed to Charleston in the early 1820s, much against the wishes of the Sulpician bishops in the hierarchy who perceive him, quite rightly, as pushy. Now, England is not where I begin my story, because although he is Irish, and although he is opposed to the Sulpicians, he calls them the adepts of St. Sulpice, and he doesn't mean it as a compliment, England is a bit too keen on lay involvement for later Irish bishops. He is an enthusiast, um, for synods, which the Irish share, but he's not quite a Hiberno-Roman. He's trained at Carlow College in Ireland, by, largely by French émigré priests who escaped the French Revolution. It's a, almost a pre-revolutionary French education that happens in post-revolutionary Ireland. So he's not like Kenrick, but they form an alliance. They form an alliance against the Sulpicians, in particular the Archbishop of Baltimore. What they want are rules for the American Catholic Church. They want rules about how priests should behave. They want rules about where baptismal fonts should go. They want rules about mixed marriages to be enforced. They want to have a uniform Catholicism, essentially what Kenrick had seen and experienced in Rome as a student, which to him was normative best practice. He comes here in Philadelphia, the trustees of St. Mary's Church make life difficult for him. Conwell makes life difficult even more 
for him. At one point, they lock each other out of the Episcopal residence with the furniture piled on the lawn. Local Protestants make great hay of this. It's a big scandal. But Kendrick something very important. He needs, particularly when fighting the entrenched Sulpician interest, particularly the established dominance and the Archbishop of Baltimore, the only American Archbishop, he needs help. He's getting pushback, he's getting resistance, he and England are being isolated, they are being systematically outvoted within the American hierarchy, and they are not getting what they want. How do you get help? And here's where a couple of quirks come in, so forgive me the sort of ecclesiastical inside baseball for a minute. In a territory that is responsible to the propaganda fide, as America is, as all of the English-speaking world is at this stage, unless the Pope himself intervenes, the propaganda is supreme. It has absolute control. It can remove bishops, appoint bishops, change bishops, order bishops to do something different. Power lies in Rome. So that's one point. Second point is, it takes a very long time, still in the early 1830s, for communications to go backwards and forwards across the Atlantic. By the time you send a letter or a complaint to Rome, they read it, they think about it, they send you a question, you send them the answer, somebody else says, no, it's not quite like that, you can move into years very quickly. It's a very slow process. What you need is somebody on the scene in Rome who can represent your interests, explain what you need, be there. And here's the third chance. Very, very few, if any, of the administrators at the Propaganda Fide are competent English speakers. That's a problem because even when a bishop has usable Latin, and surprisingly few actually did, and almost none of them had Italian, which was the working language of the Holy See. Now, the Sulpicians have French, and French is widely read, so they do have that access point. But very few read, if any, read English. So all these correspondence and documents and arguments is coming in in English. What to do? Now, the fourth chance. Kenrick, about six months before he left to come to Kentucky, met another young Irish student who'd been sent out to the Propaganda Fide College. And they overlapped for six to eight months. It's a little bit unclear. This was a young man called Paul Cullen from Prospect County Kildare. Cullen, like Kenrick before him, lived in the Propaganda Fide College, and this co-location of the college and the congregation is crucial. No other Roman seminary was embedded in a Roman congregation. It's kind of like having a school in the State Department, like in the State Department. Okay? So there's immediate daily access to seeing how things are going on to the bureaucrats at every level. Cullen and Kenrick knew each other for a while and maintained contact. When Kenrick came to Philadelphia, he wanted Cullen to come too, to open a seminary, what becomes Charles Borromeo. Cullen says, no, 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 no. But they stay friends. Provides him with books, mostly original theological books, including the ones Kenrick wrote his great dogmatic and moral theology, were provided by Cullen. Cullen served as an editor for those books, showed them to the Pope, helped with their publication and dissemination. But Kenrick realized very soon that Cullen, who had remained in Rome, and by 1830 was rector, or 1832, was rector of the newly revived Irish College in Rome, that Cullen could be the agent he needed. The person who could, because he spoke perfect Italian, could explain English language conflicts to the propaganda, literally in their own language. 
And crucially, at my fifth chance, Cullen was uniquely trusted. Cullen had been a brilliant student in the 1820s. If you guys think your course is hard, Cullen learned among Syriac, Chaldean, Greek, Hebrew, French. He already had Latin and he mastered Italian. He was frustrated his German wasn't up to strength. He excelled and won every prize going through most of the 1820s, not just in the Propaganda Fide College, but Rome as a whole. He was chosen in 1827 to present, and this is the thing that always terrifies me, the subject of his doctoral dissertation was, and I quote, all theology, unquote. <laughs> 228 theological propositions, which he had to defend in front of not only the Pope of the day, but two future popes, both Pius IX and Leo XIII. He excelled the Propaganda Fide, published his, his dissertation. It's a triumph. But more to the point, Cullen became the protege of a guy called Mauro Capillari, who is the cardinal prefect of the propaganda, the boss of the propaganda, the colonial secretary of the Vatican, if you will. Capillari was building around himself a very small, no more than four or five people, small network of younger protégés including Antonio Rosmini, who some of you may be familiar with, the great Italian theologian, founded a religious order, the Rosminians, and a handful of others. Nicholas Wiseman, who goes on to become Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster. All of whom were extremely academically brilliant, gifted linguists, and close personally to Capillari. Capillari becomes Pope Gregory XVI in 1832. This is crucial. Cullen has direct, immediate, and personal access to the Pope, who himself is a product of the Propaganda Fide, raising its status within the Vatican bureaucracy. Kenrick knows all of this. So he represents to Cullen the concerns and problems and issues he's having here in the United States. Cullen becomes his agent. What does Cullen wish to do with this agency? Well, gets a great job. The propaganda has all of this material flooding in on it. The cardinals are busy. The minutanti, the bureaucrats, are busy. None of them read English, or very few. So they say to Cullen, whom they know, whom they admire, whom they've li literally lived with for 10 years, can you explain it to us? Here's all the stuff. You read English, you're Irish. Tell us what this means. So of course he does. And let's just say he provides a particular set of answers. This will be true for the next 50 years, nearly. He doesn't die till 1878. So what Cullen does is explain American controversy, that's between Kenrick and Conwell, or Kenrick and the Archbishops of Baltimore, explains it to, the, to Rome in an Irish way. Or not just Irish ethnically, but those Irish who were formed in Rome like Kenrick and Cullen were themselves. Over the next 20 years, from 1830 to about 18, well, let's say 1852, 22 years, Kenrick, with Cullen's assistance, does several different things. First, he begins to remake the American hierarchy in his own image, increasing numbers of Irish appointees. Kenrick's own brother, become Peter Kenrick, becomes the first Archbishop of St. Louis. John Hughes, born in Tyrone, a parish priest in Philadelphia, goes to New York. John Tymon, American-born, Irish parents, goes to Buffalo. Michael O'Connor, Cullen's vice rector at the Irish College in Rome, becomes the first bishop of Pittsburgh, something Kenrick took six or seven years to arrange. Big fight. 
And what they're trying to do is the American church, which in 1830 had one archbishop and about 10 dioceses, by 1850 has four archbishops, three of whom are Irish, sorry, five archbishops, four of whom are Irish, is to try and create a dominance, never every appointment. That's not possible. Because Kenrick has another idea, which the Irish will then replicate in Australia, in Canada, in New Zealand. Synods. Because, as I've, you may or may not know, certainly at this time, a bishop was master in his own house. As long as he did not directly anger Rome, there was very little the other bishops around him, or even his archbishop, could do to change his behavior. But a synod was different. A synod would be the bishops coming together, either as provincial or from the 1850s national in the United States, and they would agree things by majority vote. These decrees would then be confirmed or altered in Rome, and they would be binding on all of them. That's not to say that every bishop implemented decrees with the same degree of enthusiasm, but it's very easy or much easier to complain about Bishop so-and-so not doing what we all agreed and you validated than just Bishop so-and-so's an idiot and we don't like where he keeps his baptismal fonts. It's a much more effective measure of control. We tend to think of John England, and this is true, but by extension Kenrick, and this is not, because they are conciliarists, that is, they want to have councils in the United States Church, we tend to see them as almost in contradiction to the centralizing tendencies of Rome, the ultramontane tendencies of 20 or 19th century Rome. But actually the councils in the United States, and Kenrick holds a hugely important one here in Philadelphia in 1832, are a means of centralizing, of introducing Roman control to the United States, of imposing uniformity of devotion, of administration, to eliminate things like lay trustees, to center power in the bishop in a diocese to insist on universal application of decrees against mixed marriages, for example, but others as well. And Kenrick's diocesan synod here in Philadelphia, only the second held in the United States, England had done one in Charleston in 1827 or something like that, is hugely important because not only do the decrees of that synod continue to endure in Philadelphia well into the 20th century, they become the model for all of the other Irish-American bishops, O'Connor in Pittsburgh, Hughes in New York, Kenrick in St. Louis, a different O'Connor in Omaha, the list goes on, to impose on their diocese. And it also becomes very important in the provincial and then national synods, the first national synod for the United States is held in the early 1850s when Kenrick has become Archbishop of Baltimore. But here's a crucial twist. When we were talking before, Father, you mentioned the Synod of Thurlis. Cullen, I'm going to fast forward. I'll go back in time. I'm going to fast forward very briefly to 1850. He is now in Ireland as Archbishop of Armagh. He's going to hold the first ever Synod of the Irish Catholic Church, or at least the first since the 1600s. He writes to Kenrick, still in Philadelphia, and says, tell me about what you've been doing in the United States. You have so many of our poor Irish there, he tells him you must know their wants better than we do, quote unquote. Kenrick basically provides the information. The Synod of Thurlis, seen by Irish historians for a generation as the mocking of a devotional revolution in Ireland, is in a sense the Diocese of Philadelphia or the Synod of Philadelphia of 1832, as added to and modified throughout the United States for the next 20 years. That becomes normative practice in Ireland 
1885, Cullen's nephew, Cardinal, the first Cardinal Archbishop of Australia, Sydney, Australia, Patrick Francis Moran, holds the first Synod of Australasia, Australia, New Zealand, which is an almost direct importation of Thurlis, which is itself an almost direct importation of Philadelphia in 1832. What we see here is a clear pull-through, not so much of American influence per se, although this originates in Philadelphia, but of that Roman influence of the 1820s, where both Kenrick and Cullen were themselves formed, the Rome of Pius VII, and crucially. But Cullen does not stop with the United States. Now, in the United States, he's acting as Kenrick's agent. This is very much younger man. Indeed, Kenrick is one of only three people, as far as I can, I can tell, none of whom were Cullen's family, by the way, who ever called Cullen Paul. Nobody else did that, including his sister. She called him Sir or father later on. It was a very formal family. Kenrick called him Paul. Kenrick is the senior partner. There's no doubt of this. But Cullen, in aiding Kenrick to essentially colonize the American Catholic Church with Hiberno-Romans, learns the skills necessary to do this. He realizes, how do you use knowledge and power in the Vatican? This crucial lack of English language knowledge. His crucially trusted position his relationship with Gregory XVI. How do you use that to manipulate a national hierarchy? And this happens very soon. By the late 1830s, he's recommending Irish bishops in South Africa, in the Cape Colony. He's recommending or assisting Irish bishops in Newfoundland hold off British government complaints in Rome. He is assisting the appointment of Irish bishops to India. By 1850, there are Irish bishops in Bombay, Calcutta, Madras, as they were then, Bombay, Madras, Calcutta, Hyderabad. Irish bishops in Cape Town and Grahamstown on the Eastern and Western Cape in Australia and South Africa. But of course, the Catholic Church is not a terra nullis in these places, not even Australia, which is a joke in Australian terms. There are pre-existing ecclesiastical hierarchies in each place. Here in the United States, it was French and German bishops, particularly Sulpicians, but not only. In Maritime Canada, it was Scottish bishops. In New Zealand, it was French Marists. In Australia, English Benedictines. In South Africa, Irish Dominicans, but not of the kind of Irish that Cullen preferred, these Roman Irish. Same in Newfoundland. Irish, but not Hiberno-Roman. Wrong kind of Irish. So what Cullen sets out to do is to destroy these pre-existing ecclesiastical structures. He starts first in Maritime Canada from the late 1830s, early 1840s, and there is a clear and consistent pattern. Local Irish people, lay people mostly, sometimes priests, sometimes the two together, complain about their non-Irish bishop. We don't like him, he's beastly to the Irish, he's heterodox, and the complaints can be actually quite Baroque and very scurrilous. For example, Bishop Fraser, the Scottish Bishop of Nova Scotia, was alleged to be about 20 years older than he was and physically infirm. Bishop Gray of Glasgow was, what the phrase was? Softening of the brain. Bishop Griffith of Cape Town had been paralyzed. He wasn't. The aged, I think he was about 80 at this stage, Jean-Baptiste Pompalier of Auckland was alleged to be sleeping with a whole variety of nuns. Not only was that profoundly unlikely based on what we know of his character, it just would have been far too energetic. 
and so on. And you can see what Cullen does. And there's some very clear correspondence, particularly relating to Australia in the 1860s, where he says, send me the allegations. All of these allegations come pouring in, first on Rome in the 1830s and 1840s when Cullen is based there, later on in Dublin when he moves there in 1852. And what Cullen does is very clear. He gathers the allegations about Bishop Fraser in Nova Scotia, or Bishop Gray in Glasgow, or Bishop Pompalier in Auckland, or Bishop Griffith in Cape Town. And he packages them together and puts them into Italian. Now, as long as he's living in Rome, he can walk over to the propaganda where he's there every day and say, we've got a problem in Halifax or Gibraltar or wherever it is. And Rome says, oh my God, we have a problem in Halifax or Gibraltar or wherever it is. It's all in English. What do we do? Monsignor Cullen, would you look at it for us again, please? Certainly. He'll examine the problem. The problem appears to be that Bishop Fraser is too old, or Bishop Griffith is insane, or they're beastly to the Irish. I and mean, everybody's Irish in these places, Cullen says. They must have Irish bishops. And here's a list of three that I can recommend. Really quite that open. Now, when he goes to Dublin in 1850, he has a problem. He's no longer going to be in the propaganda feed a day by day. His successor as rector of the Irish College, a man called Tobias Kirby, fulfills this role on his behalf. So it's Kirby who will go to propaganda and say there's a problem in Sydney, there's a problem in Melbourne, there's a problem in Dunedin, or wherever it might be at the time. And this goes all the way through into Cullen's death in 1878. Consistently, it's okay. Everyone's going to leave now. <laughs> no, it's all right. Consistently, the problem is that the Irish want to replace and supplant. They don't ever get rid of every bishop everywhere. But as they did in the United States, the goal is to create enough space to create a national hierarchy where the Irish hold a majority. In Maritime Canada, it became three to two. In New Zealand, it became two to one. In Australia, six to four. But as soon as you have a majority of ideologically consistent, remember, ethnicity is not enough. It's Hiberno and Roman. As soon as you have a majority of suitably theologically congenial Irish bishops, you can impose essentially the Diocese of Philadelphia's decrees from the early 1830s, which they do. You can work to expand, because these churches are expanding. Irish migration happens post-famine. A lot of this is pre-famine. But the church is growing. New dioceses, new religious orders, new territory. Stock it with correct Irish bishops. Build new seminaries like Borromeo down the road, like St. Patrick's Manley in Sydney, uh, Holy Cross Mosgill in Dunedin, New, Ze New Zealand, and so forth. Modeled on the Irish College in Rome, which is itself is modeled on the Urban College of the Propaganda Fide that young, young, young Kenrick and young Cullen were educated in. Why does all of this matter? Because it's very successful. Only Scotland tells the Irish because they knew the trick. Scotland only becomes targeted in the early 1860s. Uh, there's huge Irish unrest in Glasgow, the typical thing. Complaints flow to Dublin, complaints flow to Rome. Oh my God, the bishop is insane. Uh, they're being beastly to the Irish. Everybody's Irish anyway. Send an Irish bishop. A couple of mistakes happen. One, Cullen picks badly. The talent pool's getting a bit shallow now. Picks a man called Lynch, who's no good. He pisses everybody off. Cullen despairs. He's made a mistake with the appointment. And the Scots have seen this movie before by the 1860s. There's correspondence in the Scottish archives saying this they mean to do, they being the Irish, 
the same thing they did to Nova Scotia to replace the Scots with Irish in Scotland. But the Scots, having seen the movie before, they pick out a chap called Call MacDonald, who apparently was six foot seven, who was a priest somewhere in the Outer Hebrides, who had one distinguishing feature. He'd been educated at the Propaganda College. He spoke Italian. He's pulled out of Barra, or wherever it was he was at, packed off to Rome with very specific instructions, stand in corridors in the propaganda and talk Italian. Bishop Gray of Glasgow, who the Irish had alleged was insane, was sent to Rome with explicit instructions, stand around not being insane, because it'll prove the lie. And the Scots are able to get rid of Bishop Lynch, but in what must have been a bit of a Pyrrhic victory, they don't get to replace him with a Scottish bishop in Glasgow, they get an Englishman, a man called Eyre. Archbishop Eyre of Glasgow as he becomes. The Scots hold the Irish at bay until the 1920s. The Scottish Church does. But that's the exception. So, but why does this matter? This is the sort of grubby ecclesiastical politicking. It is quite grubby. I mean, the, the, the correspondence is challenging. I mean, the one guy, uh, the other guy other than the Scots who got a, sort of got one over on the Irish was a man called Enrico Carfignini. I don't know if anyone knows anything about Newfoundland history. Not normally something people say, yes, yes, me. Coffignini was this sort of extraordinary Italian Franciscan who winds up getting appointed bishop of Harbor Grace, Newfoundland in 1869 by chance. Cullen's, uh, he says, Cullen says himself, I wasn't in Rome. I have no idea who this guy is. I had nothing to do with it. Coffignini is a chancer. He'd already been expelled from Newfoundland. He'd been expelled from the Franciscans. Uh, he was referred to as a vagabondi, vagabond. Uh, he apparently extorted people for money. One of Cullen's secretaries, inevitably, was appointed apostolic delegate to Canada, a man called George Conroy. The Bishop of St. John's, Newfoundland, was another one of Cullen's former secretaries, Thomas Power. You see the theme. They were fighting with Carfignini and were trying to have him removed. Conroy, the apostolic delegate, comes to St. John's to sort the matter out and apparently assassinates, is rather, is assassinated by Carfignini, at least that's what the Irish thought. Carfignini goes in to see the apostolic delegate, leaves. Next time somebody's in the room, the apostolic delegate, the apostolic delegate is dead. Now, did he whack him? Who knows? Is Carfignini capable of it? Maybe. Interesting thing is the Irish thought that he'd assassinated the apostolic delegate. In other words, you had to take very direct um, action to block the Irish. That probably was a bit extreme. Personally, I think Carfignini probably did it. The more I dig into Carfignini's life, he's just a, somebody write a, needs to write a novel about this guy. He is a complete chancer. But anyway, unless you're prepared to assassinate the Irish, or you've got a six foot seven Italian speaker on hand that you can send to Rome, you're going to lose. The Irish replace the English Benedictines in Australia. They replace the French Marists in New Zealand. They conquer in South Africa. They become the dominant force there, these Hiberno-Roman secretaries, former students of Cullen, Dublin Dosses, and priests. They become very dominant here in the United States, Kenrick's network, in Canada, and so on. But this matters because when I have a bigger room, I always ask the question, how many people think they're Irish? And most of the hands go up in American universities. We all know the thing, Irish-Americans. And I say, well, how many of you were born in Ireland? There's maybe one hand left. How many of your parents were born in Ireland? There's maybe three hands. And I always ask the question, well, why is that identity so strong? Why is it so enduring? 
particularly when, say, Irish Protestant identity, with the exception of Appalachia, is almost totally attenuated, even though Irish Protestants were in the majority in places like Ontario, parts of South, um, almost all of South Africa, parts of Australia, parts of New Zealand, and yet that Irish Protestant hybrid identity has vanished. Why is the Irish Catholic identity so strong? Partly it's numbers, of course, famine migration, but that's many, many, many generations this endures. Why at Villanova do we have a big exhibition on the Irish Rising? What's the link? I would suggest, I would argue, that although it's by no means all of it, an enormous part of it is because Irish bishops were able to take over the national hierarchies of a hierarchical church in most instances before or at least during the big famine migrations. And they bring with them not simply a particularly nasty form of ecclesiastical politics, but they also bring with them a whole series of assumptions and practices. Absolute savage attacks on mixed marriages, long before Netamari in the early 20th century. They bring with them huge numbers of nuns and brothers in religious orders. They build institutions like Villanova. They create the institutional structures of Catholicism, cemeteries, schools, hospitals, social clubs, confraternities, sodalities, temperance societies. Most called St. Patrick's or St. Bridget's, populated by Irish priests imported from Ireland or educated, local people educated in seminaries modeled on Irish models or Roman models interpreted through an Irish lens. Kenrick builds one here. And what that does is it raises the walls behind which the Catholic community will grow and endure for many generations, well into the 20th century. And it inculcates them with a whole series of devotional practices, a whole series of social assumptions, a whole series of institutions, and an Irish identity mixed in. Now, of course, the Catholic Church begins to absorb large migrations, Italians most obviously in the United States. The Irish deal with this in a whole variety of ways, partly through the idea of ethnic parishes, where Irish-controlled dioceses would have two or three, or whatever the numbers dictated, of ethnic parishes of a particular non-Irish ethnicity who would then be left to themselves. As Bishop Hughes said at one point in about 1852, the best thing to do with Germans, he had a problem with Germans, is give them their own parish and leave them alone. The quid pro quo, of course, is they don't mess with things at the higher level. So American Catholicism, like Australian Catholicism, like South African Catholicism, like Canadian, non-French Canadian, Canadian Catholicism, and so on, becomes this particular Irish fusion, sharing groups like the Sisters of Mercy, the Christian Brothers, the insistence on the social and spatial and sexual separation of Catholics from Protestants, all of which allows the fusion of Irish and Catholic identity to become much more embedded than it otherwise might have been. I'm not saying it wouldn't have happened, but it would have happened differently with less, I think, less endurance and certainly less commonality. If you go into the archives of Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Canada, what you see are the same networks, the same personnel, the same institutions, the same textbooks, the same emphases, whether that's on the 40 hours devotion or the sacred heart and devotional terms, the emphasis on preventing mixed marriages, the insistence on creating a Catholic social network, the total fusion in Scotland, for example, Celtic Football Club, I don't know if anyone's a fan of Scottish soccer, where it's the team of the Scots and the symbolism is entirely Irish, no differentiation between the two. Or the example of the Irish American Cultural Association in Canton, Massachusetts, a body that has nothing, as far as I can tell, whatsoever to do with the Catholic Church. It's a lay institution. If you go to their website, 
they tell you what's going on locally, and they give you mass times for Sunday. Why? Because clearly Irish people would want to know when mass was. But of course, in many places, Irish Protestants were either a large minority or in some cases a majority. As far as I can tell, there's no directions to the local Episcopal Church. Again, that identity has become attenuated. Irish and Catholic have become fused. Ireland itself develops in a very different way, although it continues to provide tens of thousands, ultimately, maybe tens of thousands, certainly at least 10,000 priests, nuns, brothers, who are going into a mold. So I'll finish. I say we can, there's time for questions, I think. Is there time for questions? Yeah. Yes. Um, finish with an observation Michael O'Connor, the first Bishop of Pittsburgh, makes when Archbishop Kenrick of Baltimore, formerly of Philadelphia, dies in the late 1860s, mid-1860s. And he says of him, remember, Kenrick had been trained in the Propaganda Fide, comes to America. O'Connor had been trained in the Propaganda Fide, comes to America. In fact, O'Connor and Kenrick's brother Peter, who becomes Archbishop of St. Louis, essentially found the seminary here in Philadelphia. They help write the decrees of that first synod of Philadelphia, the first diocesan synod in 1832. And what O'Connor says, I think, is right. He says, you cannot attribute to Archbishop Kenrick the spread of the Irish across America. He says, that's the fault of the British. Famine, brutality, the usual political stuff. But, he goes on, this is sort of a tribute to his friend. Archbishop Kenrick created the mold into which these Irish were poured that shaped Irish-America, Irish Catholicism for generations to come. What I would say is that O'Connor is absolutely right, but he could have said the same thing about English-speaking Canada, about Newfoundland, about Southern Africa, about Australia, about New Zealand, and to a certain degree, about Ireland itself. And I think that's a crucial point, because we can trace this through a whole series of contingencies, a whole series of accidents, if you will. And what we think of as being simply American Catholicism or Irish American Catholicism is not only very similar across the whole of the English-speaking world, what it actually, as I would suggest to you, is the Catholicism of the city of Rome circa about 1820. Thanks. I can't wait to read this. And the inside baseball yeah. of how things got done. So I just can't wait to uh, read your work. Thank you. But I gotta go to mass. There you go. Take care. Thank you. And I'd like to get your contact information from Craig. Oh, absolutely, Craig has. And the Know Nothing Riots. Please, Father. No. They're very random. So is my okay, lecture. Don't worry. <laughs> yes. Patrick Ryan. Who succeeds uh, Wood, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Yes. Yes. He, he succeeds Wood. Yeah. He was a great doorman. He 
came from Zeralays, yeah. uh, is there, would you assume that there is a uh, connection? The Zeralays connection, we talked about the Simmons uh, of Zeralays. Yeah. And Ryan came from Tipperary, Zeralays. Yeah. He winds up as a bishop and a personal part of our bishop in St. Louis. Yeah. I think that I mean the United States, something I didn't really stress, the United States is different in this sense because it's not Cullen operating on his own bat, if you will, right? Is everywhere else Cullen is doing this for himself. He's learned his trade, if you will. Here it's Kenrick. So the, the, the link is that Kenrick, his brother Peter in St. Louis, John Baptist Purcell in Cincinnati, Hughes is a bit problematic in New York, but Hughes knows not to cross. McCloskey, who you mentioned when we were speaking before, McCloskey is actually trained in Rome in the 1830s. McCloskey's um, correspondence from that period, he talks about Cullen taking him under his wing. McCloskey? Yes. Under the wing of Cullen. Of, under the wing of Cullen in the 1830s. So again, you have this where Cullen, uh, when, when Cullen, uh, or sorry, when O'Connor uh, or Peter Kenrick both want to be Jesuits, it's Cullen who talks them out of it in Rome. I was looking at letters here just now this afternoon uh, where Kenrick is writing, um, saying, please send some money, care of Cullen's brothers in Liverpool. When these guys travel, they stay with the Cullen family firm of Verdon and Cullen who are cattle dealers in Liverpool. So it's a, it's a network they plug into, but Kenrick is, is the senior partner. Okay? Cullen works for him. When Cullen goes to Ireland in 1850, he takes almost no further interest in America because he's got other things on his mind. But if you go through, if you actually walk your way through the Episcopal appointments in the United States between, let's say, 1830, Kenrick's arrival in this city, and let's say the appointment of Spaulding, Martin Spaulding, who's also trained in the propaganda, also lives at the Irish College, also a Cullen protege, but Kenrick's protege. And uh, Spaulding is Kenrick's successor in Baltimore. Take it to that, so late 1860s. You can probably find, let's call it three out of every five, roughly, Episcopal appointments are of this Kenrick, Cullen, O'Connor, network, either directly or they're the protégés of these guys. And they, of course, have their own protégés. They create their own diocesan synods. They send their, or synods, they do that, the diocesan seminaries, which are modeled on what they themselves knew, which ultimately is Rome. Not Maynooth, not Thurlis, but Rome. And they also have their own protégés. They send their brightest students to the North American College, which Hughes tries to block. That's Kenrick who sets that up. And a man I didn't mention called Alessandro Barnabo, who's the Cardinal Prefect of, Alessandro Barnabo, Cardinal Prefect of Propaganda and Cullen's great, Cullen's great mentor after Gregory dies. Uh, Barnabo pushes hard for North American College. Hughes doesn't want it. He thinks that's gonna make propaganda too powerful. He gets overruled. It's Kenrick who pushes that. So one of the Cl McCloskey brothers, not that McCloskey, but one of the brothers becomes the first rector. So again, you have the elites going through this system. North American College is a clone of the Irish College. The kids go to the Propaganda Fide. 
So what you're getting then is this ecclesiastical thread, which isn't, as you know, it's not the only one available. Spanish language Catholicism is very different. French Catholicism is very different, within bounds, but different. This is a very Irish Roman, I call it Hiberno-Roman fusion. So where Ryan fits in that, I'm not 100% sure. But when he comes to Philadelphia and how he fits, um, I would be surprised if he wasn't either a, a second generation, as it were. The fact he goes to St. Louis first, even though Peter Kenrick goes off the reservation in Vatican I, big time. He opposes papal infallibility, one of the very few that does. Um, but the fact that Ryan goes through St. Louis suggests that he's part of the Kenrick family nexus in some way, but I couldn't tell you the exact yeah, tweak of it. Peter Kenrick, the ordinary of St. Louis, and Ryan uh, winds up auxiliary and then goes mm -hmm. to St. Louis. Let me ask you another question. Sure. Uh, Gregory XVI mm -hmm. uh, was, in certainly in the modern world, using our vocabulary, <laughs> Yes. Pope in, 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 in the modern world. Yes. Now, he was reacting against the uh, French Revolution with this reign of terror. He was trying to uh, recreate the world as it was, as if the revolution mm -hmm. never happened. Now, uh, tell me again the uh, relationship. Helen and Gregory the Sixteenth was. Was Helen a reactionary? reactionary? Yes and no. I, I, Gregory, the thing to remember about Gregory is that he's, he's not the most extreme candidate in either the Conclave of 1828 or the Conclave of 1830. Uh, not to get again too far inside baseball, there's the so-called Zelanti faction, who are the real reactionaries. Gregory is actually seen as a bit of a moderate. Capillari, as he then was, is seen as a bit of a moderate. Um, that, the 1830 Conclave is extended. Because of that extension, you've got the French, it's 1830 to 31, it goes into 31. Um, remember the second French Revolution, when it throws Charles X off the throne, the July Revolution is going on. There's a similar revolution in Belgium, or what becomes Belgium, Russia's in flames. There's problems everywhere. The Papal States, because there's a power vacuum, because Pius VIII dies almost immediately, very short-lived Pope. Everything but Rome itself has fallen by the time Gregory is elected. So Capillari becomes Gregory the Sixteenth, and all he holds is the city of Rome. Yeah. Yes, correct. All he holds is Rome. So he's bang in the middle of a revolution. He's not thinking about 1872 and the reign of terror. He's thinking about what's going on right there. There's an attempt in December in Rome, while the conclave is still underway, uh, to actually have a coup d'état in the city of Rome. It's put down, but only just. Cullen is sitting there too. He's seeing all of this. Both of them have a tremendous and enduring terror, which has huge implications for Irish history for Cullen, a huge and enduring terror of nationalist revolutionaries. So when you get Gregory's great fulmination, Merari Voss, where he just denounces the modern world from railroads to newspapers to everything. As you say, it's one of the most reactionary documents in papal history. You actually look at the context and it becomes much more explicable. Now, Cullen changes some of the rhetoric. For example, Gregory's going after liberals. At the same time, Cullen is denouncing in his private correspondence liberals as basically demonic. <laughs> Cullen's rhetoric over time changes. He comes to realize that a British liberal is very different from an Italian liberal, right? People like Kenrick, people like Cullen actually start to realize that 
a religiously neutral state, either an actually religiously neutral state like the United States or an effectively neutral one as the British Empire is becoming, imperfectly, but is becoming, is better for Catholics. Now you can't say that, certainly under Pius IX, but if you actually look at the way Kenrick, Spalding, Cullen, Moran in Australia, look how these guys relate to the state. They're, they're, they're in a sense, they're, they're trailing stuff John Courtney Murray is saying in the 20th century in the United States. They're just not saying it in print or out loud. They stop complaining about liberals. Liberal becomes a compliment. So you know, this Protestant is a liberal Protestant, meaning he's nice to us. That Protestant is illiberal, illiberal, meaning he's beastly to us. Cullen transfers that and starts talking about Mazzinians, as in Giuseppe Mazzini, the Italian patriot. Now this is later on. Capillari's dead before Cullen makes this shift. But actually, if you dig into Murari Voss and you look at Cullen's behavior in Ireland, change the word liberal for Mazinian, and there's not that much change. Because what they're attacking is violent secular nationalism. And again, remember, that's my point, is Capillari stroke Gregory XVI. He's not a reactionary until he gets elected in the middle of a revolution, directed at him. Changes the perspective. Same thing happens to Pius IX, remember. Pius IX is elected as this great liberal pope. Then Mazzini, the Roman Republic, all the stuff of 1848-49, suddenly Pius IX becomes this astonishing reactionary. Again, because they perceive themselves to have met liberalism and they don't like what it looks like. Because it means a secular republic in Rome and priests being hunted and whatever it might be. That was far too long an answer to your question, I'm sorry. You use the phrase, Yeah. By the way, the seminary that I went to, which is St. Charles in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. um, back in the 50s, founded by Kenrick, modeled on the Papa Don uh, I think Cardinal Gonzalez went to Papa Don At any rate, that was the Hiberno Roman Seminary. Uh, daughter was a fraternity. 120 years on. Yeah, or 100, yeah. Oh. Here's one for you. The uh, Earth's Mistress of New York, I get garbled on the name. One, I don't think I ever made it here. This may have been King Cannon through the uh, Napoleonic Wars mm. and so on. He never um, got to sail. The second one, I think. Connolly? Is it? He died very shortly. Right. But there's a Frenchman in there. Dubois. A very gifted guy, Dubois. Yeah, the Irish said he was insane. Okay, we continue on that motif. <laughs> when Dubois was installed in the original St. Patrick's in New York, which is down the bottom of the island. Yeah. When he was installed, the Vicar General of the Diocese was an Irishman named Power or Powers. Thomas Power. Thomas, oh, you mentioned that name? Nope, but it's, that's a different one. John Power, sorry, here. To mm. conciliate the Irish, uh, they asked this Monsignor uh, Powers, Power or Powers? Power, I think. To preach the installation mass in St. Patrick's. And you know what he preached on? We don't want you, we want one of our own. Yep. Yep. Right? Yep. Well, he lost the job as Vicar General. Yep. <laughs> Funny enough. First day that Dubois. Dubois, at the end, and this 
He either was or he requested to be buried under the stone over which he would walk to enter the church, claiming right. they walked over me in life. <laughs> they as well walk over me in death. Now, have you ever? Heard I've not heard that story. I've read a lot of Dubois' correspondence. I can easily see him saying that, <laughs> but I don't know that story. And then the funeral of Dubois is preached by John Mews from Tyrone, and the preacher, of course, in Frenchman, in Canada, or New England, or somewhere, never showed until the mass was delayed and delayed and delayed. And finally, they, John Hughes was now, he was really butchered in New York. John Hughes spoke for an hour and a half on the value of praying for souls in purgatory. <laughs> he never mentioned Dubois' name. Dubois. Dubois had blocked Hughes from getting into the seminary. It's actually more complicated than that, in a sense, because uh -huh. Dubois literally leaves France in 1792 on the day of his ordination. He had been at school with Robespierre, of all things. Okay. Dubois had been at school with Robespierre. Where? Robespierre? Yeah. Maximilien Robespierre. Dubois, he had been schoolmates. Oh, my. Uh, so Dubois is one of this group who flees. Now, he's not a Sulpician when he leaves France. He joins the Sulpicians here in the United States. That's unusual. He founds Mount St. Mary's. Hughes, uh, who comes from a fairly rough background, works as a gardener at Mount St. Mary's. His cottage, I guess, is preserved on the grounds. And Dubois eventually admits him to seminary. So although Hughes is not a Sulpician, and he's not trained by them until adulthood, he's very familiar with them. So Hughes sort of sees both sides. He becomes fluent in French, but never in Italian. He doesn't visit Italy until the 1830s, where he's amazed, but he's not a Roman. So Hughes and Dubois, in a sense, should get along. Dubois is happy to get Hughes, because he sees it as a way of blocking power. And indeed, there's letters from power in Kenrick's correspondence, which is now in Baltimore, and Cullen's correspondence, which is still in Rome. So we know power is keeping everybody informed about how bad Dubois is. Indeed, John England refers to him as worse than crazy, Dubois. Um, but Hughes is, not a, Hughes is not a man to play second fiddle. So he thinks he's going to New York to run things. It's the usual thing. I mean, coadjutors are a dangerous situation. Auxiliaries are okay. Coadjutor, he's just waiting for you to die. Yeah. Um, so he, exactly, yeah. Exactly. So Hughes and Dubois, Dubois is genuinely unwell by this point. This is the late 1830s. I uh, think he dies in 1840. 142, somewhere like that. Um, so Dubois trained Hughes at Mount St. Mary's, had patronized him to a great extent. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't. But Hughes never fits because he's not a Hiberno Roman. He's an Irishman. He's a patriotic Irishman. If you see his behavior in New York, it's fulminations against the British. It's ostentatious St. Patrick's Day parades. It's the rebuilding of St. Patrick's Cathedral. It's all these things. But that's the point I always try and make is it's not somebody once put it to me, not patty counting. You can't just go through the hierarchies of different places counting Irish surnames. There's an ideological thread here as well. Hughes is smart enough not to challenge him. He basically says, don't bug me in New York. 
and I won't bug you in the rest of the United States. But he can't hold it off. He's not really trying to, to be fair. He's just not interested in the same way that these guys are. So New York, but again, McCloskey is his successor. McCloskey, Rome, 1830s, American born to be sure, but he gets that Irish experience in Rome. Did he? I didn't know that. Interesting. Doesn't surprise me, but yeah. Hey, uh, can I continue with his question? Oh. I think we probably, we probably got one, well, one more. Uh, okay. we, got, we, we have to get Colin to the, to the screen. My, this, is my, <laughs> this is my last question. Years ago, I attended the Yates Summer School. Mm. And they took us in an amphibian tour of the mountains, etc. And there was a holy well there. And the fellow giving the tour, he, he was not a Catholic guy. Mm -hmm. And at one point, they showed the, the arrived at the Holy Well, and it was a, a plastic statue of Our Lady of Lourdes standing in the Holy Well. So the tour master, he looked at me, and he said, do you think that the Catholic Church has taken over Ireland? Mm -hmm. Now, they, they, you, you have illustrated that brilliantly. In our country, the United States, when did the Irish hour end? Ooh, I don't know. I'll give the historian's answer, which is my period. Okay. <laughs> so you know, in the, let's say 1960. S certainly no earlier. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think 80 or 85 percent of American bishops had Irish names. Yeah. Then we had this whole run of them in Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh, Ryan Turner, Dr. Bill Harris, and then all of a sudden Pope, mm -hmm. then Italian, and also Northern Indian. Uh, so there was, it ended somewhere in the 60s. The point, the way I would answer that is that by that time, ethnicity as such becomes less important. Not, not, not that Irish American identities are strong, although that's perhaps happening too, mm -hmm. but that these, this network of the first half of the 19th century has essentially created American Catholicism and its educational in institutions and its pathways to power and its patronage networks to the point that it's almost indistinguishable so that my wider argument is that, uh, yes, this is important in the preservation and endurance of Irish American, Irish Australian, Irish Canadian, but also within the Catholic Church, if you forgive me, a narrower field to an extent. This is what becomes the dominant motif within, or the dominant thread within American Catholicism. 